Earl Fontanelle, and you're listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 135, Esoteric Hermeneutics, Divine Hierarchy, and the Ineffable. The Philosophy of Iamblichus, Part 1. In this two-part episode, we're going to try to do the impossible and sum up Iamblichus's philosophy in an hour or thereabouts. We're not going to do the material justice, but we're going to try to cover the basics. The details of Iamblichus's system really aren't podcast material, to be honest. Before we start, a procedural comment relevant to most everything we will be saying in this two-part series. We, like all scholars who work on the Divine One, shall not be doing what we did with Plotinus on the podcast, i.e. trying to make sense of his difficult thought from his copious, complete works, all of which survive. We shall be trying to make sense of Iamblichus's difficult thought from the fragments of what we know was a copious, complete works, almost none of which survives in extenso. We shall thus, as it is our wont, try to keep our interpretation minimalistic. There's much more that one could reasonably say about Iamblichus's thought and the system of his universe from what we should be saying here. But to say it, you need to do things like argue that, for example, Proclus, in this bit of his Timaeus commentary, is actually citing Iamblichus even though he doesn't name him, and so therefore we can say that X, Y, and Z are Iamblichian doctrines, which, when we turn to his extent works, then explains puzzling statements A, B, and C. This sort of thing is going on all the time in scholarship, and it's wonderful, but what we're hoping to do for this podcast is give a basic summary of what we can say, and leave the um, arguing about the specifics to the experts and to our expert listeners. So minimalism. Now on with the show. Most of this episode, gentle listener, will be concerned with metaphysics, which, for Iamblichus, as for Plotinus and Porphyry before him, is a map not of some abstract ideas about reality, but of an immaterial terrain to be traversed by the philosophic adept. Metaphysics for Iamblichus does claim to describe how reality is, but also lays out a description of places you should go to some degree. Now, as we shall see, you can't really go there for Iamblichus, but that's not the whole story. Iamblichus's vision of what these places are like, however, is very different from any known predecessor in philosophic Platonism. But before we get to the metaphys, we should discuss two more mundane but very important matters, curriculum and scopos. So, curriculum. We know from a curious work called the Anonymous Prolegomena to Platonic Philosophy, which was written sometime after Proclus, so probably in the 5th century, but we don't know by whom or when or where, and from many commentaries that come after Iamblichus, that Iamblichus created an approach to reading Plato which became canonical. First of all, reading certain Aristotelian texts was an introductory part of the curriculum, later to be termed the Lesser Mysteries, following the Eleusinian model so beloved of Platonists. Then there came a canon of ten dialogues, in order. Alcibiades, Gorgias, Phaedo, Kratilus, Theaetetus, Sophist, Statesman, Phaedrus, Symposium, and Philebus. Culminating with the two so-called perfect dialogues, Timaeus, and Parmenides, the Timaeus being the perfect dialogue on physics and 
the Parmenides being the perfect dialogue on metaphysics. Now, this curriculum is significant in a number of ways. Firstly, while we have little bits of evidence of curricula from earlier Platonism, Iamblichus's curriculum would seem to be our earliest known really prescriptive reading order for the dialogues of Plato. And it was carried on into later Platonism so that Yambi sort of sets the reading order taught in later schools, like the Athenian school, which we shall be discussing. Secondly, this reading order was not seen as accidental. It was based in the ideas that firstly, Plato taught a complete course in higher knowledge covering everything. So by reading the dialogues in the proper order, you're basically getting a kind of full education in universal knowledge, right? From the basics to the most important higher matters of metaphysics, also known as theology. But secondly, that the dialogues themselves mirrored reality. The book of nature and supernature for Iamblichus and later Platonists is perfectly reflected in the books of Plato. A great place to look for this stuff is the anonymous prolegomena, which we mentioned earlier, where you have a kind of digest of the reading rules found in post-Proclean Platonism. Plato's text is, in a sense, reality itself. Or there's a one-to-one mapping between the two realms of dialogue and world, which leads to a kind of text-as-universe vibe. When we get to Salustius's On the Gods in the World from the 4th century, we shall see this approach become pronounced and almost postmodern in a weird late antique way. Okay, so influential curriculum, Iamblichus sets a trend toward reading Plato as a kind of book as world. And thirdly, Iamblichus's curriculum is part and parcel of a whole new reading methodology, which was brought forward by Iamblichus as far as we can tell, namely reading Plato according to Scopos. So what is a skopos? It's a subject matter. And Iamblichus assigned to each dialogue a single skopos. And that skopos is the hermeneutic key through which the whole dialogue must be read. So you take a potentially messy, wide-ranging platonic dialogue, and you compress it all in a way. Each dialogue is about one thing and one thing only. Now, we have plenty of earlier evidence for classification of the dialogues according to theme. So, the Timaeus has long been known as physikos, a dialogue dealing with what we would call physics or this world, right? Reality in the physical world. But Iamblichus seems to have been doing something much more hardcore with his hermeneutics, and something which can only, I think, be described as a full-on esoteric reading approach to Plato. Once you know the skopos of a dialogue and rules were developed for determining the skopos in later Platonism, many of which doubtless go back to Iamblichus, but we can't say exactly which ones go back to Iamblichus, right? But we know he had rules for determining the skopos, and we find lists of rules in people like Proclus, some of it's Iamblichan for sure. Once you know the skopos, everything in that dialogue is to be read as pertaining to that skopos. Now, the only way to read the dialogues such that everything is about the same thing, be it the nature of a given metaphysical reality, the nature of the cosmos, the nature of a particular level of gods or whatever, 
<laughs> the only way to read the dialogues that way is to make every interlocutor, even if they take opposing viewpoints, to be expressing something about that single theme. In other words, the only way to read this way is through esoteric hermeneutics. We need to delve very deeply into Plato's text so that we can find his true meanings. Now, we don't, as far as I'm aware, have a methodological passage in Iamblichus telling us why Plato wrote esoterically. And as we saw in Plutarch and Numenius, see episodes 25 on the esoteric Plato, episode 67 on Plutarch, and episode 78 on Numenius, as we saw with those guys, they do have specific reasons that they give why Plato wrote esoterically and also give his methodologies for writing esoterically, how he hides stuff in plain sight. I think now in the late third century, you don't even have to give that stuff anymore. You can just assume what everyone knows that Plato wrote esoterically and then get on with the job of finding his true esoteric meaning and paradoxically revealing it to everyone. Now we'll have some more to say about Iamblichus's extraordinary esoteric literalist reading of Plato once this uh, expose on his philosophy is finished. But just the fact that he is an esoteric literalist is already interesting, right? For now, though, having established a few important points about his programmatic approach to the Platonic texts, which has to do and kind of follows on from the ideas, you know, what we know about his teaching life and the life of his school that we talked about last time, let's get into the metaphysics. In the next episode, part two of this series, we're going to talk about physics and the place of human beings therein. So we're starting from the most exalted level of reality and we're moving our way down, as it were. Now, I'd like to start with a few general points, uh, which I take to be the sort of pillars of interpreting Iamblichus. Uh, Iamblichus differs fundamentally from Plotinus, his great predecessor, and a philosopher with whom he is in explicit dialogue in many of his works often to refute him. His greatest difference with Plotinus is often said to be his refutation of Plotinus's doctrine of the undescended self. But there's a more fundamental difference lying behind that rejection of the undescended self. Iamblichus believes in a non-transformational divine hierarchy. For Plotinus, in a sense, the sky's the limit, or rather the hypercosmos is the limit. When it comes to human ontological transformation, you can become the divine noose. You can, if you are a very special person, in a sense, become the one itself. In doing so, you cease to be what you were, namely a soul. For Iamblichus, a soul is a soul, is always a soul, and can never cease to be a soul. This is what Plato says, and Iamblichus is a follower of Plato. A noose must always be a noose. Realities for the sage of Apamea have an unalterable identity. So this changes everything. Iamblichus's hierarchical reality is one where everything stays put. Hence, of course, Plotinus can't be right about the undescended self. If we are the noose, or if we are within the noose, it follows that we cannot be souls. But we are souls, therefore we cannot be in the noose. So that's what I call Iamblichus's non-transformational hierarchy, the first pillar Offsetting this established order, which cannot change, is a fine-grained complexity and flow in the divine hierarchy, whereby even the lowest reality, matter, is infused with the illumination of the gods. And there are a lot of gods in Iamblichus, not to mention a number of 
colorful subsidiary entities that we'll get to in the next part of this series. Like Plotinus, Iamblichus posits a basic framework drawing on a selective but by now pretty universal exegesis of Plato and of the Parmenides in particular, in which we have a one or primal unity, a nous or divine consciousness, and soul as major elements. Now, Platonists in Iamblichus's time are all arguing about how these entities exist and interact, but they all agree that these entities must and do exist. They are hypostases, realities. However, Iamblichus's reading of the Parmenides is new. Uh, there are more levels than these basic three, and each hypostasis is itself a triad, or at the minimum, a triad. It may be a triad of triads. So here's the cool part. Uh, we mentioned when we were discussing Plotinus how the boundaries between his hypostases are often blurred, in his text at least. To take one example, the pre-noetic efflux, or proto-nous, so-called, is intermediate between the one and the nous. So you sort of can't say where the nous begins and the one ends, or vice versa. Now, Iamblichus eliminates the blurriness, perhaps at the cost of genuine continuum. For each triadic hypostasis, the lowest member of the triad is the highest member of the triad below it. It's monad. So the terminology goes amethectos, unparticipated, metachomenos, participated, and katamethexin, or enschese, according to the participation, or something like that. So each triad has a unparticipated monad at the top, a participated central term, and the final according to the participation term. So each level of reality has these three moments, as uh, English scholarship tends to call them. So we're looking at triads, which are really the internal structures or actions or energies of unitary realities or somewhat unitary realities. And these triadic hypostases are all overlapping and interlocking. So that is our second pillar of interpreting Iamblichus, the interlocking of hypostases. A third pillar I think we want to take on board is the principle of downward extent. So for Plotinus, to experience the noose in its fullness, you need to go up to the noose, not up directionally, perhaps, but up ontologically, to leave behind matter and the body and so forth. For Iamblichus, all principles of reality extend to the ultimate depths of reality, including to matter. So the one is present to matter. Just stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Plotinus fans. While his ineffable one, which we'll get to in a moment, is incalculably remote and totally transcendent in every possible way, it is at the same time present to individual humans as the one of the soul, and even present to matter itself. Indeed, it's the limiting principle which allows matter to be things at all, because otherwise it wouldn't even be a one, you couldn't even have a one body, right? So the higher principles in Iamblichus go all the way down to the bottom. In other words, although we're sort of stuck here in our insouled physical life for Iamblichus, yes, we die and reincarnate, but even between lives, we're not in the noose, we're 
presumably in our uh, home star, and we'll talk about that next time. We're stuck down here, but this place where we are is not empty of gods. In fact, we're sort of at the crossroads of all the divine energies, because we have sort of filling our uh, materialized reality, the power of the one, the power of the noetic gods, the power of the noeric gods, even the power of the heroes and archangels and other interesting folks that we'll be talking about next time. So the world really is a confluence of divine powers down here in the mundane realm. So there, I'd like to add one fourth pillar to this interpretive framework. There seems to be a principle of mirroring across the hypostases in Yamlikos, which is very pervasive uh, to his thinking, such that it's really extraordinary the degree to which he sees not only the cosmos down here, the sublunary cosmos, as a kind of mirror image of its noeric archetypes, but the noeric as a mirror image of the noetic. And each term in a triad seems to be mirrored in all the lower triads and all the higher triads. And there's this kind of constant parallelism across reality, which in a way militates against the reading of Yamlukos as this sort of layer cake creating, over-complexifying, static uh, metaphysician. It's all one thing in a certain sense, and it's all kind of, although stratified, very much interlocking and uh, self-reflexive or holographic, I guess is the best way to put it. So that's my fourth pillar for interpreting Yamlukos, this mirroring at many levels. And we'll see this in very formal terms in the sense that seemingly every level except the level of the one has a demiurge, right? There's like a noetic demiurge, noeric demiurges, there's a sublunary demiurge. But these are presumably one entity linked by a something like a ontological chain. Now, Yamlukos doesn't have the concept of an ontological chain the way becomes explicit in Proclus, but this is the kind of thinking he's getting at. So those are my four basic structural principles of the universe, according to Iamblichus, according to me. I think no one will disagree with me too much at this point, but do note that these are my interpretations. These are what I think are kind of notable or important for reading Iamblichus. Now, as we go into this episode further, we're going to get maybe into some more controversial territory, because everything we know about Yamlukos's metaphysics, except for the, the bits that survive in his monographs, like De Mysterious, is reconstructed from quotations in later authors, and there are a lot of apparent contradictions to iron out, but we're going to do our best. So first of all, the realm of the One. For Plotinus, as we saw earlier on the show, the One doesn't really have a realm <laughs> at all. It is pure simplicity, and it's surrounded by strong apophatic hedges at all turns. Now, with Yamlukus, there is something like a realm of the one, and characteristically, it is a realm with multiple ones. Indeed, we seem to have a triad of ones. This realm, I don't know quite what else to call it, this hypostatic level of reality, corresponds exegetically to the first hypothesis of Plato's Parmenides, see episode 36 of the podcast. As shown in the diagram accompanying this episode, Yamblichus's first one, the ultimate reality or unreality, is not even called one. It's called Pantelos Areton, utterly ineffable. Now, paradoxically, of course, the name utterly ineffable is kind of a name. It's like a label you're applying to this principle, which 
obviously contradicts itself because the whole point of being ineffable is that you cannot be named. More on that in our episode on Yamblukus and the Esoteric. Now, after the ineffable, we have the second one, known in our sources variously as the Utterly One, the principle before the dyad, and the uninvolved vis-a-vis the noetic triad. So this is your classic Plotinian-style One, an utter unity, transcendent but giving rise to a dyadic element of multiplicity, which then gives rise to everything else. On this reading, Jamblichus has simply added another one, the utterly ineffable, beyond that first one, or that middle one, which would have been the first principle. So he's sort of upping his apophasis game in a certain sense. He's saying, oh yeah, Plotinus, you have an ineffable one. Well, I have something that's even more ineffable than that. We can't say anything about it. All we can say is that it's ineffable. We can't even call it the one. And here, Iamblichus is following a trend that we see in thinkers from Philo and Basilides onwards toward greater and greater removal of their supreme gods from any form of predication, connection, association, involvement, sayability. Uh, the Valentinian Kaluptos, hidden, the, the Sethian great invisible spirit, these might be seen as roughly contemporary religious manifestations of the same instinct that we're seeing played out in a more philosophically literate way in Iamblichus the instinct to remove God into a realm of unattainable transcendence. Damascius lays out the problems of the realm of the one in Yamlikos as follows in Dylan's translation, quote, Let us bring up the following point for consideration, whether the first principles, archai, before the first noetic triad, are two in number, the completely ineffable, hepante arretos, and that which is uncoordinated, asyntactos, to the triad, even as the great Iamblichus maintained in book 28 of his sublime Chaldean theology, or rather, as the majority of those who came after him preferred, that after the ineffable and single causal principle, there comes the first triad of the intelligibles. Or are we to descend even from this hypothesis and say, following Porphyry, that the single first principle of all is the father of the intelligible triad? End of quote. Now, I think Damascius has got Porphyry wrong here, but that's beside the point. It's not what we're after right now. We want the yamb. And Damascius has laid out pretty well the schema that we're reconstructing in this quotation. Note that Damascius considers Iamblichus's complication of the realm of unity to be a minority position. Quote, the majority of those who came after him preferred that after the ineffable and single causal principle, there comes the first triad of the intelligibles. Now, that's what we see in Plotinus, except that the intelligible world is not a triad for Plotinus. It's just the intelligible world. But Iamblichus' position will have its ardent followers, including Damascius himself. And in fact, from the perspective of what survives of Platonism is the majority position, right? So Damascius knows of a bunch of philosophers who, who think there is simply one one, followed by a noetic triad. But all the guys that survive from late Platonism that we have the texts of the Athenian and Alexandrian schools are all of the the multiple ones uh, school of thought. This position has often been attributed to Syrianos, Proclus's teacher, but we can see that it goes back to Iamblichus. So back to our world of the one. After the haplos hen, the utterly one, that's our central one, comes a dyad 
of limit and infinite, or peras and aperon. What is this dyad? Well, we're going to kind of skip it and just say that this idea is drawing on Plato's oral teachings and Neopythagorean ideas, and it's probably safe to say that Iamblichus thinks it's a genuine Pythagorean idea going back to Pythagoras, even though we think it probably comes from Plato. Specialists are going to freak out and tell me to get more specific about what I mean here, but I'd say just go back and listen to the relevant episodes of the podcast. We don't have time for the dyad here. At any rate, once the dyad has been introduced into metaphysical cosmology, you know that multiplicity can exist. And once you have multiplicity, you can have heterotes, you can have otherness. And once you have otherness, you have reality, right? Because if all you had was sameness, you would simply have the one with no world emanating from it. After the dyad of limit and unlimited, we find tohen-on, the one being or the existing one. And this is going to be the first principle or monad of the next hypostatic realm, that of the noetic triad. This principle, this monadic one being, is also called the eternally existing, also simply called the ion, the eternity, is sometimes called to henomenon, the unified, that which has been made one. And while it impinges on the noetic, as we've just said, it remains truly transcendent. We learn that it is unknowable, even to the flower of nous, that special faculty posited in the Chaldean oracles, see episode 75, and that this one being contains not the forms, but the transcendent unknowable monads of the forms. What are they, you ask, gentle listener? Well, let's get noetic. The realm of the noetic and the noeric. Now, I confess myself baffled by Iamblichus's architecture of the noetic and noeric aspect of the universe. There are some things we can say for sure. There are some things about which we have contradictory reports in the sources. And there's also the possibility that Iamblichus changed his mind uh, about the complexities of the noetic reality, which we'll come back to. So the noetic reality is, of course, a staple of Platonist thought and has by now, I think, especially under Plotinus's dominant influence, become the world of forms. The forms have become thoughts in the mind of God, as it were, God being the noose itself. But for Iambicus, we have these proto-forms, these monads of the forms. Forms of the forms, in fact. Just as realities in our world, the phenomenal world, are images of the forms or participate the forms, so the forms themselves are images or participate the monads which are to be found in the highest noetic or quasi-noetic reality, tohen-on. Okay, <laughs> where are the forms then? Well, Iamblichus lays out a f- refreshingly and reassuringly familiar noetic triad, uh, which listeners to our special episode on the anonymous commentary in the Parmenides will know, the famous being-life-nous triad. This noetic triad is definitely a reality for Iamblichus, and seemingly is the basic architectural principle of the noetic realm, so that the hen-on, the one being, is being, right? The life, zdoe, is the participated middle term of the triad, and nous is, well, nous himself, the divine mind as we know and love him, containing the forms, probably. Somewhere in all these moments are to be found the noetic gods, or rather, the whole triad 
is the supreme noetic god. Each moment of the triad is a noetic god. The forms are also noetic gods. And there are seemingly a lot of other noetic gods, some of which have traditional names like Zeus and Kronos and Rhea. And it's difficult to say just how many gods there are and how they interrelate. Now, what the heck does noeric mean? This term is very rare in, in Greek before, well, Iamblichus's time. Uh, it appears a couple times in Plotinus, but seemingly just meaning the same thing as noetic, really. But now, from Iamblichus onwards, this becomes something new, and it's going to remain so going forward in Platonism. However, this term does show up in one place a lot before Plotinus. I refer, of course, to the Chaldean oracles. We have a lot of noeric in the Chaldean oracles. And this is probably where the term is coming from for Iamblichus. Defining what noeros means for Iamblichus and later Platonists is tough because it's already tough to define what they mean by noetic, uh, noetos. But this term, like noetos, refers both to a divine reality and to a faculty of some kind, a sort of consciousness or cognition of eternal realities to which humans have access. So we human beings for Iamblichus are not noes, we are not nooses, we're souls, as we established earlier. So the divine nous, in this case, nous methectos, the lowest form, or the nous proper of the noetic triad, is a kind of mainframe computer that we can access, but it doesn't actually belong to us individually. Now, whatever the noeric is as a function of human cognitive life, and we'll hopefully get back to that, metaphysically, the noeric is a place, or rather a set of triadic divine beings, the noeric gods, who are concerned with, among other things, the demiurgic creation of soul and the world, the cosmos, and so forth. There may also be a triad of noetic noeric gods, bridging the gap between the noetic and the purely noeric. How weird is all this? Well, as far as Iamblichus is concerned, this is just sound exegesis of Plato, and of the Timaeus in particular. Now, probably if we had more Iamblichus, we'd realize that this is also exegesis of the Chaldean oracles, but he can certainly explain this in terms of the Timaeus, right? If you recall that that dialogue the supreme physical dialogue in Iamblichus' reading, the demiurge creates the cosmos with reference to a pre-existing blueprint, the paradigm, which is noetic. Okay then, so the noetic realm for Iamblichus is the paradigm. It therefore cannot be also the demiurge, as it is for Plotinus and many others. The demiurge must be something lower or posterior to the paradigm. So the noeric triad is the demiurge. Uh, I'm not going to get into too much detail here because there's actually multiple demiurges sort of mirrored across his entire system except at the level of the one. But anyhow, the noeric gods are the primarily demiurgic gods. Those are the basics of the noetic stroke noeric realm. There's way more to it, but this is anyway what I think we can confidently state based on the commentary fragments and other bits and bobs of surviving Yamlikin theory. Now, what about Iamblichus changing his mind, which we mentioned a minute ago? Proclus thinks he did, or actually Proclus says he contradicts himself. But the easiest way to read that is that he changed his mind. He cites a text called On the Speech of Zeus in Plato's Timaeus, in his own Timaeus commentary, as evidence that Iamblichus was inconsistent. 
For this and other reasons, I think Dylan is right to consider this a separate text from Iamblichus's main Timaeus commentary. As we mentioned last time, this text seems to have outlined a very complex noetic noeric hierarchy of gods, beings, realities. Uh, first of all, triads, plural of noetic gods, are mentioned. So we don't just have a noetic triad, we have noetic triads, and probably these are triads within triads, so that each moment can be subdivided further into another triad within that moment, which raises, incidentally, the question of how far in you can focus. What if each uh, part of each triad is a triad, and then that each of the parts of that triad has a further triad within it, and so on and so forth, right? There's a triad of noeric gods, or if we accept Dylan's emendation of noetic noeric gods, right? Like median between the two, uh, which we would expect to find. And finally, a noeric hebdomad, a group of seven, which we can conjecture based on the Chaldean oracles, might have consisted of two noeric triads followed by the hupes docos, the membrane, which separates the world of the immaterial noetic noeric reality from the realm's of lower entities. Now, after that, you might think you'd find Sol, but no, this is Iamblichus. We've still got a long way to go before we get to Sol, and we'll talk about that next time. Now, it gets even more complicated than what I've laid out here This in this particular text, and the terminology used is sometimes quite unique. The heis nous, the one nous, for example, is not the normal Iamblichian terminology as far as we can tell, but here it stands for the henon, or the lowest one principle, the highest noetic principle, the noetic monad we've been talking about. The terminology also gets particularly mythological. These triadic arrangements have names from traditional Greek mythology, like Kronos, Rhea, and Zeus, if at least the scholiasts can be trusted. And there's other complications, which we won't get into here. So what's going on between the relatively simple noetic triad we've seen from fragments from Iamblichus's commentaries on the Timaeus, on the Philebos, and elsewhere. And this particular text, which seems to have this weird hebdomad and a bunch of other kind of triads within triads and other complicated stuff, what's going on? I can think of a couple things that might be going on, but I don't have the answers, gentle listener, and maybe uh, you can come up with an answer that's better than anything I can come up with. Maybe what we're looking at is something I alluded to earlier, a system of correspondences and universal holographic mirroring so fine-grained that you can just zoom in infinitely. And so that the more simple system and the more complex system represent the same system at different levels of focus. I hope that makes sense. So you can say there's a noetic triad, but if you zoom in on that noetic triad, you realize each member of the triad is also a triad. And then you can, you know, go from there. You see what I'm saying? Could this be a case where he has more and less esoteric teachings so that, you know, the, the basic commentaries that he's written are his uh, kind of standard Yamblichian Platonism, but then he also has this slightly more esoteric uh, text on the speech of Zeus in the Timaeus, which tells of a more Chaldean and perhaps more secret teaching. Totally speculative. I don't really buy it, but it's possible. Perhaps he really did just change his thinking on over time, getting more complex, and as John Dillon has hypothesized, maybe just getting more into the Chaldean oracles as time went on, and bringing more and more oracular material in. After all, when you've written 
a commentary on the oracles of 28 plus books, it's going to leave marks on your thinking, if not scars. Uh, <laughs> now, why a Noeric Hebdomad? The coolest suggestion I've come up with, which totally rings true, is from Dylan, 2010. Quote, the curious circumstance that the intellective, that's the usual way of translating Noeric, while um, noetic is usually translated as intelligible, right? So, the curious circumstance that the intellective divinities constitute not three triads, but a hebdomad, may have something to do with the fact that these gods constitute a paradigm for the heavenly gods, who form a hebdomad, and the hupizdokos, the membrane, performing a similar role to that of the moon. End of quote. I think he's got it in one there. And this lowest Noeric reality with the membrane is, of course, impinging on a world that is more familiar to our gentle listeners on an everyday level. I'm talking about the cosmic and sublunary worlds. And we should be talking about those worlds and the many types of um, deity and other subtle being that exists therein next time for part two of this series. We'll also talk a little bit about some other lower phenomena like fate, like matter, and of course, a little bit about the role of human beings in this lower world and what we get up to, how we interact with all this stuff that we've been laying out. Until then, stay like the difference between what seem to be two systems of noetic metaphysics laid out in Iamblichus's commentary works and his mysterious work on the speech of Zeus in the Timaeus and stay esoteric. <laughs>